he said that um, in the morning I was going to speak and then in the evening at 6.30 I would still be preaching. <laughs> they all went home about one o'clock, I think. The famous preacher's note, lest I should be felt to be getting at lawyers only, in the sort of training of preachers, they often speak about preachers who have a little note in the margin, argument weak, shout louder. You see, these lawyer guys, they talk so fluently, so persuasively, that you don't see the flaw in the argument. Actually, sometimes they don't see the flaw in the argument. And in this case, it is a gigantic flaw in the argument. Here's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit? Well, the short answer is you can't do anything to inherit. You have to be someone to inherit. You have to be in the family. You have to be a relative. You have to be born that way, or at the very least, adopted formally in. You have to be very close to the source of the inheritance. Now, you'll know as well as I do that we have some very painful and sad examples of people trying to abuse this reality. It was not so long ago that we were shocked and horrified at Dr. Harold Shipman abusing his position as a trusted family general practitioner, a doctor. He abused that position of trust. He hastened the deaths of many of his patients. We still don't know how many exactly. And uh, what tripped him up was that he altered some of their wills in his favour. And that's what gave him away in the end. That's a very sad and painful illustration. I suppose we do have uh, funnier ones. Well, they would be funny if they weren't quite so sad. People who spend their lives cozying up to rich people in the hope of benefiting in the end. Sometimes they even get a promise to encourage them along the way. And then on the appointed day they go with bated breath to another lawyer's office to hear the will being read. I gather you can pay a small sum and go into the central records offices once this has happened and you can read all the wills which become public documents. And they've been mouth-watering about the sums involved for a long time. And then comes that truly, truly dreadful moment when they discover that old Lady McSnooks has left everything to the local cat's home. You don't believe me, do you? Uh, Ailish was telling me at uh, Beulah home this afternoon uh, when we had tea with the folks there at uh, four o'clock or so uh, of a, a, someone she knew, a cat she knew, actually, who's inherited a very grand house by just the same process. Extraordinary stuff. No, you can't do anything to inherit. But Jesus, interestingly, doesn't pick him up at that point. He kind of plays along. And he takes the question at face value. If you want to build a relationship with God, he says, effectively, you need to learn to honour God. You need to obey his commandments. And here they are. You need to live his ways. That's easy, says the lawyer, with breathtaking arrogance. I know all that. I've done it. Love God? Fine. I've done that. Love my neighbour? Yes, all okay. Those who are like me, I've done that. Fellow members of the Jewish community, God's own special people, I've cared for them. Yes, done, tick. And the lawyer seems to have won the argument, it seems. 
Question, answer, response, that's it, finished, end of story. But being a lawyer, he can't quite leave it there. He wants to kind of press his advantage and push it on. Forgive me, those of you who are lawyers or training to be them, but it's here in Scripture on this occasion. Other groups of people get uh, tanked, and you'll see how I get tanked in a minute as the story unfolds. He wants to demonstrate his advantage, so he takes another step. Who is my neighbour? Please, give me a list, give me the details. And then we come straight into this most familiar story. The story, as we have headed in the Bible, of the Good Samaritan. One of the most popular in the whole of the New Testament. I think sometimes we have spent so long on the actual story that Jesus told that we miss the conversation that it was part of. Four questions, four answers surround this story. And this story, like the best inkjet printers, if you like, they work at three levels. And I want to see if you will find it helpful to see the three levels at which Jesus is dealing with this lawyer, with this person. Here's the first level, which we might call living eternal life. Living eternal life. Comes the memorable and shocking story. Now the Samaritan, in this story, was a shocking character to the first hearers. For a Samaritan to do this kind of mercy stuff was just beyond their mental furniture when uh, the folks around Jesus heard this. But I think for us it's rather lost its power to shock us. I mean, after all, aren't the Samaritans those good people who you can ring up if you're desperate? And won't they always be there to help you? Of course they will. They're not strange, odd people who you wouldn't anywhere, normally go anywhere near. They welcome you. They welcome anyone. That's the point. Or uh, the Billy Graham organisation has another one called Samaritan's Purse, where they uh, seek to reach out, rather like Tear Fund do, to bring aid and to open up the possibility of a conversation about following Christ. Difficult for us, therefore, to feel the shock of what Jesus is saying. Well, let me try. This is like someone from Al-Qaeda caring for a beaten-up American soldier in Afghanistan the nearest I could get to it, to shock you. These people don't do such things, do they? Wouldn't they just finish him off? Well, no. And here is this devastating contemporary incident. The characters don't come out at all well in the story. And uh, our culture will be very quick to pick up this kind of inconsistency. Here are people who say one thing and yet do another The tabloids will be after you, especially if you're in the public realm, if you do that. This priest, again, we we don't quite get the, uh, the background of it. We think he's a disgrace. But the shock comes from the fact that when Jesus first told the story, there would have been a little round of applause at this priest. Yeah, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, walk on by. We we find that incredible that you could think like that. It doesn't seem at all right, but let me try and explain. You see, priests were called to serve God. And nothing but nothing, actually we hinted at it in one of the songs, you know, God is above all things and and nothing gets in the way. Now don't misunderstand me, I know what that song means. But here's a priest and nothing must get in the way of his calling. He's been on duty, he's been up to Jerusalem. He's single-minded, you would commend that, wouldn't you? In somebody dealing in the things of God. And he had no idea, you see, or we get no idea from the story, whether he thought this beaten up man got what he deserved. After all, if you uh, travel on roads like these, down the mountain, maybe one or two of you have done that walk 
from Jerusalem down the way to Jericho. It's very steep, it's very narrow, it's very dangerous. It's a very popular place for muggings and robbings. And surely if you go down there on your own, you get what you deserve, don't you? You're asking for it. Maybe he thought like that, but we don't get any hint of that. Everybody knows uh, that it's a dangerous, dangerous place. But here's this priest on his way back from his special shift in the temple. He's done his work. He wants to get back to the family, to his friends. And for him to get involved with a wounded man like this means if he goes anywhere nearer than a couple of metres, that's what the rules say, he becomes unclean, especially if this guy dies on him. And then he's out of it. Because the rules were that if you're involved with any, anybody who'd just died, and especially if you touched them, you had to be separated from social contact for a week. Which would be devastating for him. And more than that, it would make life very difficult. Not just for himself. It wouldn't just take him out of his own social loop for a week. But it would make life difficult for everybody else. Yes, his family, if he had servants, his servants. His colleagues would have to cover for him. He would make things much more difficult for them. So it looks like it would be right not to stop. A little murmur, round of applause. Yes, quite right. He went on. And then comes this Levite who's like an assistant priest. He also would have been doing stuff in the temple, working away there, responsibilities. At least, as you see from verse 32, he didn't just take a look and then walk by. He actually came to the place. It's very deliberate, that language. He came to the man was. I don't know whether that's better or worse, actually. He came right up close. But again, he walked away and passed by. He couldn't perhaps tell from the state of this battered, bleeding body kind of what background it was, what the story was, and it was obviously not speaking to him. And he kind of, it, the risk's too great to get involved, you see, for all, some of the same reasons. For all we know, he saw the priest ahead of him. You can see down this road who's ahead of you, uh, amongst the corners, apparently. And uh, he may have seen this priest. You see, for him to do something different, well, that would be tantamount to criticizing the religious leader. And, and you don't do that in this day. It would be to accuse that priest not only of hardness of heart, but of getting the wrong end of the stick about the law. And that wouldn't do. I don't know, as I say, which is worse, just to walk by or to have a good long look and then keep going. Either way, nothing is done. Just as those who beat him up have sinned by violence, so these two, the priests and the Levites, the neglect of the situation, that's also a sinful thing. And then comes the Samaritan. Now he's not ordained. He maybe doesn't have special responsibilities in the temple, though he may have been there praising God with the others. According to the tabloids of his day, what you would expect him to do is exactly what I mentioned before. Put the boot in, finish the job while no one's looking, and scarper before you get caught. At least that means he'd have one fewer of his enemies to worry about. You may think I'm making this up, but such depth of feeling was there. We see it still in many parts of the world, not least parts of the Middle East, as we call it just now. Such hatred, such depth, such desire to drive the Palestinians or drive the Israelis into the Mediterranean. 
It's still with us. And elsewhere in the world as well. But of course, he does not do it. Instead, verse 33, he stops. And watch it step by step through verse 33 with me as he comes near. Here is the Samaritan. He, come, he came where the man was. He saw him, took a long look. And then he took pity on him. And that's one of those really strong words in the New Testament. It's a guts word. It moved him deep inside. This poor guy's predicament uh, was churning him up. But of course it's possible to do all those things. To feel like that, to look like that, to stop like that. To take in the situation and still do nothing. But instead, verse 34, he went to him. He bandaged him. He cleaned up his wounds. More than that, he loads him onto his donkey and trots away and goes with him. He pays an inn to care for him. He stays overnight for it's the next day that we're told he makes his promise. If there's any more needed, I'll be back and I'll make sure you're paid and it'll be the right sum. It's an extraordinary set of actions and activities. Talk about the second mile. This man goes ten. It's an amazing journey. He pours in the oil and wine. They were standard first aid remedies, but they were also used in the temple. These are worship things he's using. He pours them over this poor man's wounds, and that word also, that's a worship word. That's what you do when you praise God and you pour out the oil before him. And so he applies his worship to this poor man, wrecked and helpless, ruined, lost. It's an extraordinary image. Unlike the religious professionals, I said I'd get it in the end, unlike the religious professionals, this Samaritan is serving the Lord as he serves this wounded traveller. The first level, you see, living eternal life. And Jesus answers the lawyer's questions, but not with a list like the lawyer wants. Not with a list of people who are his neighbours, you know, there's this one and this one and this one, number three, number seven, number ten, you can do it like that. No, no, Jesus knew that that's what he wanted, but instead Jesus effectively says to him, to whom will you become a neighbour? That's who your neighbour is. So who will you become a neighbour? Well, the answer is everyone in need. Even, especially, a lifelong enemy whom you would have hated before now. This will be the proof that faith is real. This will be the evidence that he is really converted. And Jesus' conclusion in verse 36 Literally, when he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbour? It's literally, which one of these three became a neighbour to this man? Between, between gritted teeth, the lawyer answers it, or the one who had mercy on him. Notice that. He couldn't bring himself to say, the Samaritan, or that one over there. Who will you make your neighbour? That's the thrust of it. Our culture says, you look after your own, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But Jesus says, no, go beyond that. 
This man is not of my own, the Samaritan knows. Yet I will look after him, he says. I will make him my neighbour. I will go wherever it takes me to care for him. The challenge, you see, is to go beyond what the culture says. You wonder, don't you, in these incidents, because often the New Testament is silent at the end of them. What happened to that lawyer? Where did he go? What did he do? We don't, uh, we don't know, we're not told. My guess is he's gone away dismayed. You see, he's seen this first level. He's seen what it would mean to live eternal life. He wants it, or so he says. And Jesus has, has shown him by this story what it's going to involve. Jesus has set the standard, if you like. My guess is that this lawyer goes away very sad, like that man who went away who had great riches. And Jesus said to him, actually, the thing that's really stopping you getting into the kingdom is the money. Uh, and if you want to really get into the kingdom and really get serious with God, you have to get rid of it. And he went away sad, we're told. Now, we're not told that about this lawyer, but I wonder if he goes away dismayed. He's seen a standard that is frankly impossible for him to reach. What will he do now? And here's my second level, as we kind of pass through this again, slightly more briefly. Living eternal life was the first, Inheriting eternal life is the second. Let's think about that for a moment. You see, what this Samaritan has done boils down in his culture to a completely irrational action. It is crazy. It is madness to behave like this. Even now, if you've travelled in some parts of the world, parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, you might know this. If you're driving and you're involved in an accident, you must not stop. It's against all our instincts, isn't it? It's an, it's an arrestable offence in our culture, not stopping. But if you want to stay alive, you don't stop. Because you don't offer help, you'll be lynched because the assumption will be that it was your fault. So I gather from those who have travelled. What this Samaritan does is madness like that. It's reckless, it's foolish, it's crazy. Normal rules of caution would mean that he should leave the beaten guy in the dead of night at the door of the inn and slope off into the night making sure no one has seen him. That would be the way to do it. Because then you could kind of do your duty and then you could disappear uh, and you'd be okay. Nobody would draw the wrong conclusions. One, one of the writers I was reading in preparation for this took us back to the era of the Westerns and imagining an Apache Indian riding into town with a kind of badly wounded cowboy over the saddle. And you know what folks would conclude if they saw that? Now, the Indian would hardly get out alive. But here this man does all this thing and stays overnight still and only eventually moves on. It's crazy. Instead of being anonymous and unidentified, he takes huge risks. And he brings the man into town. He lets himself be known. He doesn't mind what they say. He lets people add two and two and make five. He stays on the scene. He books in overnight. He hangs around in the morning and he leaves a forwarding address. Incredible. Amazing. Inheriting eternal life. No wonder you see in the first few centuries of the Christian church in and around the Middle East before the gospel spread to Scotland. 
They were working on this passage. And no wonder the earliest Christians saw a clear parallel between the Samaritan and Jesus. That's how they thought of it. Because what the Samaritan does is exactly what Jesus does. He comes out of his way, leaving his rightful heavenly kingdom to become like a human being, to become one of us, to live the lives that we have to live. He gets involved when he doesn't need to. He stays with it when the pressure is on. When he is wrongly accused and falsely tried and dies for his troubles, he does it willingly, apparently, and clearly. And here you see this wounded man is saved by someone who gives this costly devotion to him. A costly demonstration of unexpected love. That's the power of it. I wonder if that's a word to some of us here tonight. You've enjoyed coming to the chapel. You've enjoyed coming perhaps with friends, perhaps on your own. But if I asked you on the door, I promise not to do this because this is seriously embarrassing, but if I'd asked you, if I said, are you really a Christian? You'd say, well, I'm not just sure yet, actually. I'm interested. I don't know quite what's going on here. One of the moving things about having the politicians here on that night was talking with them before they had the hustings. And to be able to talk with one or two of them about if they came here on a Sunday, they'd struggle to find a seat. And their eyes were kind of getting bigger and bigger. I didn't realise that churches were like that. We, we thought churches were closing and dying and people were giving up and just forgetting it. But uh, there's a church here, there's a church at the other end of town and there are other churches around where you can hardly get a seat. That's something going on here, isn't there? Maybe here's a word to you if you're fascinated by this. You're enjoying it, but you'd honestly say that you're not there yet. Maybe you want to do something like Christianity Explored. Or maybe you'd want to find out about first steps. But for you, the invitation is to go back to the lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer is, there's nothing you can do. And the story that Jesus tells kind of draws you into it. Shows you just how it works. You can only be in need, like that man in the gutter on the road. I don't know how much this beaten up guy recognised. Maybe you can recognise the situation more clearly even than him. You know that in the end, despite all your efforts to change your life, those changes and those efforts never seem to last. You cannot help yourself. Everything looks lost. You need a good Samaritan. Supremely, he is here. He is Jesus Christ. And the invitation to you this evening is to place your life in his hands. To let him reach out to you. To let him come alongside you. To let him begin to clean you up, bandage your wounds and heal you and provide for you and lead you into the future that he has for you. That's the invitation to eternal life that is yours tonight. Level one, living eternal life. The standard is set. Level two, inheriting eternal life as the Samaritan, the Christ, comes to change us who cannot change ourselves. But what about the third level? For those of us who would say, yes, I am a Christian. Maybe I've been a Christian for some time now. I've been involved in this congregation or another for a long time. Here's the third level, expressing eternal life. You see, for us who are believers in Jesus, thinking like a pas- about a passage like this, on a day like this, Beulah Sunday, 
there's something even more striking going on. I don't think I saw this clearly until I heard Anne Allen speak recently. She is the former convener of the Church of Scotland Board of Social Responsibility. It's quite a mouthful. Uh, but Anne, when she convened that group, was often in the media and often in the press. And uh, she obviously had to think very carefully about what she was doing, just like Jeremy and I have to do and others represented here and in other churches who do find ourselves getting engaged in public things. By the way, I discovered an amazing thing in the Parliament. I didn't know this. You'll think I'm an ignoramus. I should have known it. But in our new Parliament, one of the most delightful things about it is that anyone can make a petition. You and I could go. We could say we're concerned about something. We could kind of write that down, get a bit of help working out how to express it. And provided it's not on their agenda, and provided it's something they haven't just finished discussing, they must hear it. Did you know that? Perhaps you did. (laughs) I didn't. Uh, And it's opened my eyes, this campaign, to realise that's the kind of parliament we've got, a parliament that gives us access to express concerns, to engage in the public sphere, and not just stay with private concerns. But all of us, you see, who are thinking about a passage like this on a day like this, could be amazed at what's going on. The lawyer asks, you see, go back to the beginning, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's personal. It's individual. It's a me question. And in that sense, it's the kind of question that so much of our culture is asking just now. We're we're supremely the generation of me people. That's the ultimate test of whether things are good or not good. How do they suit me? How do they help me? It's a me question. It's also a what can I get question, an acquisitive question. How can I get this for me? Jesus lets him ask the question and answer the question for himself. But in the end, the lawyer knows he cannot do it alone. Because Jesus' answer in verse 29 takes him beyond himself. Who is my neighbour? Immediately we've gone away from me to us. Immediately we've moved away from a personal acquiring question to a question based on a community, on society, on our involvement and our engagement with that world, demonstrating the love of God in the wider scene. I wonder if you noticed that. Perhaps you did. I hadn't seen it until I heard Anne speak about how she was involved in this way. Here, Jesus takes this man and explodes his worldview and breaks up that me-centeredness and takes him into a different level altogether, engages him with a whole world around him. Anne's view, as she spoke, and I was moved by what she said, was that we in the churches, first and foremost, must urgently learn what it means to create community like this, to demonstrate the love of God amongst ourselves so that the world will see it. And Jesus then drags this man out of his personal comfort zone. Somehow, you see, we've managed to separate these two questions. What must I do? Who is your neighbour? As Jesus did not. One of the things I miss already just after four months of travelling is the regular church 
events and activities uh, that I had at St. Thomas's. One day perhaps we'll uh, plug back in again properly. At the moment we're living in Liberton and found a great welcome there from uh, Christian friends locally. And of course I'm on the road a bit more now, Sunday by Sunday. It's been great to see different congregations and different churches. But I, I miss the, the, the baptisms, the, the weddings, the funerals and so on. But I've got a wedding coming up next week. But uh, in the midst of a, a marriage service, in the Episcopal Church at least, uh, we, we do a number of slightly strange things. First of all, we, we let the couple have a last public chance to back out. Uh, we kind of whisper solemn words to them. Actually, uh, in England, they ask if anybody in the building wants to object to the wedding. Now, technically, you don't have to do that in Scotland, but it's quite fun to do it. And you assure the couple, of course, that if it happens, you know exactly what the procedure is uh, and you know exactly what the grounds for objection that are allowed are. And by the time you've got to the wedding, of course, you've worked out that none of those applies. Uh, so, but if anybody does object, you have to go through a system. But uh, it's quite fun and it just kind of relaxes everybody when nobody objects. I mean, forget all the old films, you know, it, does, it hasn't happened in the past, it doesn't often happen now. But there's another moment in the service, after they have said their vows and we have welcomed them, there's a solemn moment where the person who's leading the service says something like this, that which God has joined together, let no one put asunder. That which God has joined together, let no one put asunder. It doesn't just mean this man and this woman whom God has brought together, though it can have that meaning. What it means is that institution of committed love and marriage within which all other things can come in that relationship. That's what God has brought together. Let no one pull it apart. It's quite an interesting moment. It's a kind of a warning to the relatives not to interfere too much. Uh, maybe it's a, a warning to others who've been looking in who are disappointed. No, no, it's too late. <laughs> but there's something of that here. You see, we have pulled apart what the Lord brought together. What must I do? Well, love God and love your neighbour. That's what I do in that wider context. That's what I plug in as I express eternal life. Of course, it's not only I, it's us in the churches. Here's what God has done. Here's how God has set things up together. Oh, people around us are very happy, aren't they, that we have a private faith. And sometimes when we talk to them, they say, oh, I'm so glad for you. It must be great being a Christian. I'm not a Christian, but... They're happy for us to be private about it. But true faith in Jesus, this lawyer discovers, goes beyond the private. We're called to be involved, to engage with our world as it is, to go beyond that keeping quiet, that privatised world. For if Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, the whole universe, as Christians declare, then the whole of life is touched and every dimension of living is changed. Beulah's great. It's a wonderful home. I hope you will take the chance to go and visit next week as you've got a little bit of notice. I know the folks there will be delighted to welcome you and I can recommend their refreshments. Bethany's great. A Christian group grappling with uh, cutting-edge issues in our culture and known and trusted as a godly group of people. Tear Fund's a tremendous group. Those networks that help us support our brothers and sisters who are persecuted Christians, they do a wonderful service. 
But the message of this evening, as of this morning for those of us who are here, is don't stop there. Go on. Go out. Engage. Be involved. Go further. Don't stay private. We are called to find ways together to go public. That's why I'm pleased at the moment to be working with churches and individuals and Christian organizations who are evangelicals, who are an alliance together to be God's people in our culture. Let's pause, shall we, as we reflect on those three levels. Take a moment of quiet.